The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On this week's episode of Science for the People, we'll be talking about the fascinating and little-known history of the autism spectrum. Stay tuned. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Steve Silberman, who has covered science and cultural affairs for Wired and other national magazines for more than 20 years. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Time, Nature, and Salon, and he's here today to talk about his book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Desiree. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So this book is getting absolutely brilliant reviews uh, from science and non-science folks alike. So are, are you surprised that a book about, I guess, the history and future of autism is resonating with people so deeply? Well, here's the thing. Yes, you know, modestly, I should probably say, oh my God, I'm so surprised, you know. But the truth of the matter is that I knew that if I didn't write a book, that both uh, clinicians and researchers parents, autistic people uh, could read that it would be a failure because I felt that the story that I was telling was so important that it needed to have as broad a reach as possible. So, uh, you know, there have been a million books about autism from the research perspective. There have been a million books about autism from the parents' perspective. There have been some very nice uh, autobiographies, actually, by autistic people. But I felt that only by writing a book that would appeal to not only those groups, but also, you know, the lay readers interested in science who'd been reading my Wired articles for years, that I would not really be doing the job. And so that's one of the reasons why the book took five years instead of a year to write. Well, the, every character in this book is very human. It is it is absolutely richly drawn. Uh, so much so that I want to meet them personally. Some of some of whom I would like to kick in the shin, quite honestly. But <laughs> but very richly drawn. Um, now, although we think of autism as a recent development, that is not at all the case. Correct? We've seen these behaviors uh, behaviors that we we think of now as autistic throughout history, and even in some very well known historical figures. Yes, that's true. Um, um, in fact, I opened the book in a very unexpected way, so unexpected that I thought my editor might say, Steve, are you out of your mind starting the book, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years or a couple hundred years ago? Well, the truth is that there were excellent descriptions of autism, very nuanced descriptions, actually, written by uh, John Langdon Down, um, you know, more than uh, 100 years ago. Um, he was the superintendent of a place called Earlswood Asylum in Surrey, England. And he wrote descriptions of children who were clearly autistic. Not only that, um, he wrote about children who uh, appeared to dramatically lose skills in early childhood. And the interesting thing about that is that you know parents these days call that quote-unquote regressive autism. Uh, and that is considered by the anti-vaccine people to be a completely new phenomenon. But here are these beautiful descriptions by really the founder of uh, British psychiatry. So um, autism is not a new thing. And the guy that I write about at the beginning of the book, Henry Cavendish, 
was not just an early scientist. He helped invent modern science as we know it and pioneered discoveries in many different fields from chemistry to physics to he even studied the mathematics of musical intervals. And, he, and yet, at the same time, he was clearly autistic. Oliver Sacks uh, sort of retro-diagnosed him Oliver Sacks being, of course, the famous neurologist author who recently passed away, alas. But um, Oliver Sacks retrospectively diagnosed Henry Cavendish as a classic case of Asperger syndrome. He was um, an amazing guy. He, he, uh, luckily, he was born into family money, he, so he filled his house with scientific instruments. In fact, he had a live-in scientific instrument maker in this house. Um, so we had hundreds of thermometers and barometers and telescopes, and uh, he had a, a forge to make, you know, lab equipment, etc. And yet, Henry Cavendish, at the same time, was so socially awkward that he would communicate with the people in his household by leaving notes written on a table. Uh, and his behavior was extremely ritualized. You could say it was as precise, precise and methodical as his experiments, as um, his biographer said. He would take the same walk every day at the same time. He wore the same outfit every day for decades when the outfit would run out. He would have his tailor create an identical outfit. He, had the, he ate the same dish at nearly every meal, leg of mutton, actually. And so... You know, in many ways, he uh, was a classic case of autism, and yet at the same time, he was the first person to accurately measure the density of the earth working alone in a shed in his backyard. So he was sort of a prototypical 21st century maker, quote-unquote, as the Silicon Valley people say, and that he, you know, he turned his house into a lab. It was like a, a dream for, for any, uh, you know, geeks, so to speak. Um, and yet he really struggled in day-to-day -day life, and there was no name for uh, the struggles he was facing. So, And definitely looking back, those are, those are very typical autistic characteristics. But let's talk about the people who actually started to define those characteristics. Uh, now, now, Hans Asperger and Leo Connor, they seem to be an example of simultaneous discovery. Can you talk a bit about them and their work? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, let me tell you what the basic timeline of autism's discovery has been for decades. And, you know, it's in uh, hundreds of textbooks and it's probably still in Wikipedia unless someone has corrected it since my book came out. This is what the basic story of autism has been for decades. Um, it was discovered in 1943 by a child psychiatrist named Leo Connor who uh, worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. He published a landmark paper that is really considered the beginning of the field in 1943. Um, and then, you know, people say, well, there was this, also this guy, Hans Asperger, who came out with a paper in 1944. It's considered a footnote to Leo Connor's discovery, in part because Connor wrote about 11 children. Uh, Asperger only wrote about four. What people generally say is that Connor wrote about, quote-unquote, low-functioning children, which is a term I, by the way, hate to use. Uh, I, I don't really use the terms high-functioning and low-functioning because I think they both obscure important truths about the people they're describing. But anyway, so, you know, Asperger's basically considered a footnote to Connor. 
It's considered one of the great synchronicities of 20th century medicine. How weird that they both chose the same term, you know, for, for uh, uh, the condition they were describing, autism. Uh, some people say, oh, but actually that came from early schizophrenia writing uh, by this guy Bloiler. Anyway, I discovered that that was actually all wrong, um, that everything I just told you was wrong, basically, or most things. What I discovered was that Hans Asperger and his colleagues at the University of Vienna in the mid-1930s discovered what we now call the autism spectrum. They were running a clinic called the Children's Clinic that was an extremely progressive place, uh, particularly for its time. It was not just a clinic where uh, people brought their kids to be evaluated for a couple of hours. It was like a live-in clinic slash school where kids would live for weeks. Uh, they would uh, take classes in history and math. Asperger would read poetry to the children. Uh, there was a nun there named Sister Victorine Zach who would um, do physical education in the morning to set to music. Um, so they really uh, helped support and enhance the children as full human beings. And for many of the uh, kids, it was a sort of place of last resort. Um, they had come there after being expelled from dozens of schools. Uh, this is something that would be familiar to both autistic people and their families, getting kicked out of schools. Um, many of them had been sent there by the juvenile courts. So these kids were not, um, you know, they were not like just slightly awkward nerds or something. Like they were uh, considered rebellious troublemakers, nearly hopeless. And Asperger and his colleagues, by taking this um, very supportive approach, which, by the way, was developed by listening to the children. Asperger said that he had learned a lot about teaching methods that would be appropriate for autistic people by listening to the children and figuring out what would work with the way that their minds naturally worked. So it was this, you know, really incredibly uh, progressive place for its time. Well, um, there was an unfortunate truth about where uh, Asperger and his colleagues were working. In 1938, the Nazis march in from Germany and annex Vienna, or not just Vienna, Austria, for the fatherland. And Asperger's colleagues and bosses, who many of whom had been Jewish before, were forced to leave the country or eventually they were dragged off to concentration camps. Many of them actually committed suicide. So Asperger suddenly found himself working for Nazis. And the Nazis were, shall we say, not interested in supporting uh, the development of cognitively disabled people. That has to be the understatement of the year. <laughs> yes, absolutely. In fact, they were engaged in a very, very different project. They uh, began, actually, a secret extermination program against disabled children and adults as a practice run for the Holocaust. So they literally developed ways of killing people en masse um, and, you know, figuring out ways of disposing of their bodies. You know, it's absolutely one of the worst nightmares in human history. And so Asperger suddenly found himself, you know, in charge of this clinic full of the kinds of children that the Nazis were trying to exterminate because they were, you know, they had this belief in eugenics, which, by the way, as I explore in the book, um, really came from America. The idea of eugenics was, was huge, mainstream science in America. Like, now we think, oh my God, you know, the Nazis were monsters. How could they have done this? And yet, uh, in America, in the, in the 20s and 30s, they would have these eugenics congresses 
where mainstream scientists and people from the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, would walk around looking at exhibits with names like the Negro problem and, you know, the Jewish problem. And there would be um, statues of, you know, the ideal man who was inevitably A, a man, B, white, you know, C, went to Harvard. Um, so eugenics was popularized in America with the all too catchy phrase, the self-direction of human evolution. I can kind of imagine that phrase catching on in Silicon Valley. You know, oh, that sounds good. You know, we should no longer be subject to, you know, random, you know. Right. <laughs> so anyway, um, so the eugenics idea, which had been really elaborated in America and also put into practice with the sterilization of people in, in uh, mental hospitals, etc., that was all going on in America. Hitler loved the idea. He read about it. He read one of the primary eugenics texts while he was in jail after the beer hall putsch. Uh, he thought, this is it. This is great. This is how I'm going to create a master race. In fact, the Nazis might have been surprised when the Americans acted so offended by this idea because it really came from us. Um, anyway, I mean, we didn't build concentration camps, but institutions were in a way like concentration camps. Anyway, so um, basically, uh, the children in Asperger's Clinic became the target of this secret Nazi extermination program called Action T4. And, um, you know, Asperger did what he could to protect the children in his clinic. Well, one of the Jewish colleagues who had to leave was a guy named George Frankel. He was Asperger's chief diagnostician. And in fact, uh, Asperger praised him for being particularly adept at judging what kind of educational path would be good for uh, the children in the clinic. Another Jewish colleague of Asperger's who had to leave was a woman named Ani Frankel. And one of the sort of scoops in my book is that she wrote uh, the first case history of an autistic uh, person from Asperger's Clinic and published it in English, by the way, in 1935. Why has that case history been overlooked all these decades? Because she did not use the word autism. They had uh, evidently not um, come up with the term yet. However, um, it was a very prescient paper. And also, I have to say, you know, as a fan of Oliver Sacks' writing and, you know, kind of beautiful in-depth case histories, uh, it was also very beautifully written. And the, the incredibly prescient thing that she figured out in that paper was that the standard tests of intelligence that that Asperger and his colleagues used on uh, typically developing children did not work on autistic people. And instead of saying that, oh, well, this kid is messed up in some way, you know, that we haven't figured out yet, she realized that it was actually the tests that were messed up for that application. She, she decided that standard intelligence tests were not working on autistic people. So anyway, that was incredible. She also left. Um, where did they go? Well, George Frankel was rescued from the impending Holocaust um, by, well, a guy in America named Leo Connor. Um, Leo Connor was uh, working at Johns Hopkins, as I say. He was one of the first child psychiatrists in America. And his mission was quite different, really, from uh, Asperger's mission. His mission was to establish um, child psychiatry as an empirical science in America and also as a sort of indispensable thing for uh, families and family, and family life and family mental health, you could say. And so in 1938, um, the first autistic patient of Leo Connor, 
arrived in Baltimore, and his name was Donald Triplett. And in, there's a little clue to, to that in um, Connor's landmark paper, in that it begins with this slightly mysterious statement. He says, since 1938, it has come to our attention that a number of children, you know, with this unusual condition, etc. Um, what happened in 1938? Two different things. One was that Donald Triplett uh, came up from the Deep South to go see him, because his parents had sort of exhausted all the other possibilities, and they heard that this Connor guy was like the guy, and, you know, they had money, and so they could afford to send their child to the guy in child psychiatry. Um, but the other thing that no one has known until my book is that George Frankel arrived from Vienna in 1938 with tons of experience, in fact, much more experience with autism then, well, Leo Connor had seen children who displayed some of the traits of autism. He had described them in his classic textbook, Child Psychiatry. Um, one of the things that some people like to think that uh, autism is a modern phenomenon say is that Leo Connor had seen nothing like that before. That's not true. In fact, he had described children with uh, sort of classic autistic traits, but he just hadn't arrived at sort of the crystalline distillation of what that diagnosis would be. Uh, Connor sees Donald, you know, he, he asks himself, like, I wonder what this is. Um, he sends, uh, Connor sends Triplett to Frankel. Frankel knows exactly what it is, because by then, in Vienna, Asperger and Frankel had already seen dozens, if not more than a hundred, autistic kids at all levels of functioning, by the way. Uh, Asperger described children with, uh, you know, severe impairments who could not talk and would probably require daily assistance for the rest of their lives. He also described a former patient who became a an astronomy professor while at the same time retaining his autistic characteristics. In fact, he would pass friends of his in the street and just not recognize them or appear not to recognize them. So Asperger had this full-spectrum view of autism. Um, one of the things that is kind of frustrating to me about history is that Asperger, in his 1944 paper, says that he had seen more than 200 children. People somehow ignore that. They look at the four prototypical cases that he talked about and say he had only seen four children. I even saw this on an, on an NIH site, actually. Asperger saw four children. No, you know, he saw more than 200 kids. Um, well, why did Asperger describe the four prototypical cases in his paper uh, as, you know, these kind of chatty little professors like? Well, he described them that way because he was talking to Nazis. The paper was written for Nazis. And in fact, in the uh, first public talk on autism in history, which was given to an audience of Nazis in 1938, Asperger sort of cops to that, well, I'm describing my most promising cases. But what he doesn't say is that I'm describing my most promising cases so you guys don't kill them, basically. Um, and not only that, Asperger apparently told his bosses that the kids in his clinic would make good code breakers for the Reich. Sneaky. Um, sneaky, sneaky. So, and, but also, if you, you know, if you know a lot about autistic people, actually that's, you know, for, for some of them, that's an excellent, you know, kind of job suggestion in a way, because they're very good at recognizing patterns 
uh, and working with codes. So not all autistic people, you know, like let right. me, you know, let me say like upfront, you know, there's a popular saying in the autistic community, if you meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And, you know, that is really true. Like anything I say, autistic people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it, you know, hardly anything applies to all autistic people other than the fact that they generally get bullied and have been stigmatized for decades. But, um, you know, no statement is true of all autistic people. So not all autistic people would make good code breakers, but that's what Asperger told the Nazis, trying to save the lives of the children in his clinic. Well, think about this historical irony, which I don't, I, I don't know if I spell it out in the book in such plain terms, but you may have heard of a guy named Alan Turing, who, you know, was just played by Benedict Cumberbatch in this thrilling movie called The Imitation Game. Well, uh, Alan Turing, in addition to being gay, also had, they say, um, several autistic traits. I don't want to retro-diagnose him. I don't know. I don't know enough about Alan Turing. But it's clear that the guys at Bletchley Park, which was the code-breaking center in Britain for the Allies, who eventually cracked the Enigma code, thus saving millions of lives, they were all into crossword puzzles and codes and stuff that people with autistic traits would be attracted to. I would not be surprised if the crew at Bletchley Park did not resemble the crew at Google London, or I just was a couple of weeks ago, in that there were, you know, I must say, I met several people um, who seemed to have a prominent autistic traits. So, um, anyway, so the Allies, in a sense, took Asperger's advice, although they wouldn't have gotten it from him, and hired a bunch of geeks, you know, to win the war, and they did. You know, it was cracking the Enigma Code was one of the huge breakthroughs for the Allies, and so, you know, we beat the Nazis with the power of neurodiversity, you could say. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. So now I'm wondering, how did Connor's perspective become the dominant narrative about autism over Asperger's? Well, the reason why Connor's perspective dominated the models of autism in the 20th century uh Here's one of them. Asperger was working for Nazis. You know, Nazis were not exactly popular after World War II. So German um, medical research that had been done uh, in the years leading up to the war and during the war was um, considered trash and, and worse um, for very, very, very good reason. Because the Nazis would use um, people in camps and, and in the so-called children's killing wards um, for experiments that no one could survive. One of the chilling phrases of my, in my book is that, you know, there were experiments that could not have been performed in cases where the patient was expected to live. Um, so the Nazis would do things that were basically torture um, to the, you know, they would experiment with how long could someone survive in ice-cold water, etc. And so um, uh, basically the entire German medical field, which, is, which had been, by the way, kind of the model for so much breakthrough work in medicine before the war, um, much of it conducted by Jewish uh, clinicians and researchers, German uh, medical literature became, uh, you know, very undesirable. Um, but there's another thing that Connor did that is not so understandable. Um, he did name check George Frankel in his paper, just as saying, you know, calling him a research assistant in a sense. Um, but he never, for the rest of his career, talked about George Frankel's connection to Hans Asperger. 
Um, and he also did not even name check Asperger in his work until the 70s. So most people think, well, you know, Connor never read the paper. It was in German, which was, by the way, Connor's native language. Well, you know, Connor never uh, read the paper because it was in this obscure German medical journal. One that, by the way, Connor cited, you know, in many other papers. Why did Connor, you know, not mention Asperger's work? Well, it was probably the, you know, the, the connection with Nazism in Connor's mind, because Connor was Jewish, and he had done this really heroic thing by rescuing not just Frankel, but uh, these hundreds, actually, of Jewish clinicians, and brought them to America and found them jobs before they were exterminated by the Nazis. Um, Annie Weiss had arrived several years earlier. Um, she actually ended up meeting George Frankel soon after he arrived in America and getting married. And I have to say, you know, two of the people who I would most like to sit down with for a couple of hours in the book were George uh, Frankel and Annie Weiss because they were had such a prescient view of autism. George Frankel, in a paper that was never published that I found, um, he, he never finished it, but it was a beautiful paper. It's clear that his command of English was, you know, not as good as, as Connor's, but still, you know, it's a beautiful paper. And Frankel mentioned what he called the continuum, which was, is exactly what we now, you know, consider the spectrum. Um, and the terrible thing that Connor did, well, he did several terrible things as well as several beautiful things, but one of the terrible things that Connor did was that he did not define autism as a spectrum or a continuum. He defined it as a very rare form of childhood psychosis. And this was useful to his mission, which was establishing autism uh, as a distinct clinical entity and establishing child psychiatry as an empirical science. Because you know that in order to do empirical science, you have to talk very precisely about uh, the terms in your work. And so he defined autism very, very strictly and narrowly. In fact, I would go so far as to say artificially strictly and narrowly uh, as this you know, very rare condition. Asperger had considered autism and autistic traits common. He saw autism in popular you know, sort of stock figures uh, from uh, mass culture like the absent-minded professor. He said that once you learn how to recognize the characteristic traits of autism, you see them everywhere. Now we know that's true because, you know, how many times do you hear in a week, well, I think he's on the spectrum, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, and so, uh, you know, autism and autistic, both autism and autistic traits are not rare. They're very common, and Asperger knew that. But that would not have served Connor's mission well because, he, you know, it would have been hard for him to say, well, you know, we're child psychiatrists and there's this condition and it's kind of vague and really fuzzy at the edges, and in fact... Some of these people turn out to be very successful, but, um, you know, we're going to talk about this thing, and it's really important that we look at it. He was defining it in this very strict and narrow way, so much so that Connor once bragged, uh, and this was after, by the way, his office became what uh, one of his colleagues described as a national clearinghouse for autism diagnoses, and I would go so far as to say a global clearinghouse, because he saw patients from as far away as South Africa. He once bragged that he turned nine out of ten children away without giving them an autism diagnosis. And these were children who had been sent to him by other clinicians for an autism diagnosis. So how many of them were what we would now say, you know, were on the spectrum? Probably a lot of them. But he defined autism so narrowly that he, let, he produced a lot of, you could say, false negatives. 
and um, so when people say, and people say this all the time, and Facebook is, you know, there are millions of memes today, you know, being clicked on share that say, you know, autism used to be so rare, you know, back in the 60s or whatever, it was 4.5 children in 10,000. Well, that mythically, you know, iconic figure was based on Leo Connor's narrow criteria. It was never that rare, as uh, researchers quickly discovered when they tried to put Connor's model into practice. But that point, 4.5 children in 10,000, is used by people who believe that autism is caused by vaccines or pesticides or whatever. Um, as, you know, that's the quote-unquote normal, you know, standard level of autism in the population. It's not true. It was never true. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the, you know, the so-called explosion of diagnoses happened in the late 80s and early 90s. And we'll definitely talk about that uh, a little bit later. I have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask. Sure. But, but what I'm so let's talk a little bit about uh, the difference between Connor's perspective and Asperger's perspective on the cause of autism. Well, um, Asperger believed, uh, and boy, was he ever right on. He believed that uh, autism was basically carried down the family tree by the interaction of multiple genes. Um, he used the phrase polygenetic. I don't know what the German word is. But um, for the time, that was incredibly sophisticated insight, that it was not just genetic. I mean, that alone would have been a sophisticated insight for the time. But that it was not just genetic, but it was caused by the interaction of multiple genes. And Asperger said that in every single case, he had noticed autistic traits in the relatives, you know, sometimes the parents, sometimes more distant relatives um, of the children in his clinic. He also noticed that some of them had uh, very creative relatives, you could say, or relatives who were unusual or eccentric in many ways. And, uh, you know, now we know that those relatives were probably what we would call on the spectrum. Uh, and so Asperger noticed this and proposed that autism was polygenetic. When Leo Connor published his paper in 1943, he too, um, he didn't do it in quite such a sophisticated way, but he said that um, autism was very likely inborn. And in fact, he observed that um, in many cases, it was that there was something different about the child from birth. Now, that actually turns out to be not so true, in fact. Many, many autistic children appear to be typically developing at birth, but then, you know, around age two or three, um, you know, cues, sinister voice, in fact, the age when many children get vaccines, you know, that, that basically autism becomes apparent to uh, mothers and fathers and also to teachers and other people in the child's life at around that age for the first time. And that, by the way, turns out to be true even for skilled observers working with a population of uh, the siblings of autistic children. So even if you know that this kid is at high risk for developing autism, even if you're a skilled clinician who's been schooled with videos and, um, you know, details of autistic behavior, you still often can't recognize it unmistakably in a child until the second or third year of life, which is very, very interesting. But so Connor said it was likely inborn, but he also left the door open to a much darker possibility. And this was in his landmark paper. He said that the parents of these children were cold. Uh, he said that they're, he, he was quite condescending, I have to say, as if he expected parents never to read his papers, which they may not have at the time. He said that their marriages were rather cold and formal affairs. 
Now, what was Connor seeing? He might have been seeing parents with autistic traits, but he interpreted them in this kind of sinister way and said that, you know, perhaps these parents are too caught up in their own um, very accomplished lives. He wrote about the parents appearing in Who's Who in America, which was like a guide to, you know, kind of interesting A-list people. Um, well, you know, if you think about it, the people who were appearing in Who's Who also had access to Connor. You know, they were the kinds of people who would find their way to Connor's office with their kids. And, you know, Connor was seeing sort of the cream of the crop in a way. Um, upper class, you know, intellectuals, many of them academics, in fact, many of them psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, and so there was a built-in cognitive bias in the families that uh, Connor was seeing. But what Connor did was um, psychoanalysis and Freudian thinking were kind of on the rise in a big way at that time. And so at first, Connor leaves the door open to both possibilities uh, in his landmark paper in 1943. But then in 1946, something changes. And here's what changed. Connor would later say in his usual rather self-aggrandizing way, he was like a kind of startup, you know, entrepreneur for child psychiatry. I love these um, parallels. <laughs> right, right. He would say, uh, you know, that my paper immediately attracted attention of uh, the attention of the field. Well, no. In fact, like hardly uh, anyone you know, wrote about it. Uh, the biggest plug that he got was from a guy who wrote in the sort of annual guide to uh, psychiatry that was that Connor had made one of the most important discoveries in child psychiatry that year. What that guy didn't say was actually his daughter was in the paper. Um, so, uh, you know, the, so Connor got a big plug from somebody whose daughter was in his paper. Um, but his work was basically ignored until he said in 1946, in a statement that ended up getting quoted in Time magazine, he blamed parents for causing autism in their children. And he said, these children have been kept in a refrigerator that didn't defrost. Well, that played big with, um, uh, you know, the media and with uh, parents even who were terrified that they were doing something wrong um, in raising their children and in parents who were looking for a great authority, likely O'Connor, uh, to tell them how to raise their children correctly. And so that refrigerator parenting thing, and in fact, specifically refrigerator mothers, because we live in a sexist society, that really took off, and that, in fact, made Connor's work popular, so that suddenly Connor had all this attention because he had blamed parents, and oh my God, parents are doing it wrong, you know? And so um, that turned out to be a terrible thing in so many ways because Connor's recommended course of quote-unquote treatment for autism became institutionalization to remove the child, quote-unquote, for their own good, from the toxic family environment. So these children were put in institutions. Well, you know, were there luxurious autism wards for these children? No. They were put in psych wards, basically, or in state schools for the quote-unquote mentally retarded or, you know, the even more insulting feeble-minded. Um, there were plenty of those, you know, so that's where the kids ended up. Meanwhile, the parents were uh, told to take years of psychoanalysis to figure out why they hated their children so much that they drove them into autism. Um, parents were told to quietly remove the child's pictures from the family albums, never speak of them again. Um, parents were told not to tell other families that they had a child with autism because it was considered a source of shame because the parents were considered, uh, you know, the, the villains in, in autism. 
And so if you put all those things together, you end up with nearly two generations of invisible autistic people who grew up in adult psych wards and homes for the feeble-minded who were never spoken of, the families could not you know, support each other. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And not only that, but in these psych wards, the children were subjected to unbelievably brutal, you know, forms of restraint and seclusion, straitjackets. You know, once uh, psych drugs came along, they got the full, you know, battery of drugs for psychotics. And so, you know, people say, when people say to me, why is it that I never heard of autistic kids? You know, because I'm a, I'm a trailing edge baby boomer. I'm, I'm old, I'm 57. So, you know, my peers will say, I never heard of autism when I was growing up. Well, there was a good reason. Because if uh, the kid was really uh, very disabled, they w were never seen. They were in institutions. And the parents did not talk about them. And this was a horrible thing. This is Science for the People. And I am talking to Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. And we'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and my guest is Steve Silberman, science writer and author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. All right, so when did did that horrible perspective on uh, parenting children with autism and, and autism itself change? Well, uh, it's important to note that before it changed, it was wildly popular. Uh, there was a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, who usually gets the blame uh, for inventing the refrigerator mother meme, who was like the first celebrity psychiatrist in America. And in the 60s, he was like Dr. Oz. Everybody loved him. He wrote a book called The Empty Fortress, where he really blamed mothers specifically for autism. And it was a bestseller. Um, and, you know, it, the ways that he described autism inspired the New York Times book reviewer to call autism, quote unquote, a suicide of the soul, which is, an, you know, so awful in so many different ways we could talk about that phrase for an hour. But, but basically, um, that uh, meme was very popular, blaming parents for, for decades. Um, and what happened was, eventually, a guy in California who was a Navy psychologist named Bernie Rimland came along and he had, um, he and his wife Gloria had a profoundly autistic son named Mark. And Bernie, you know, got the standard treatment of, you know, some, his kid was diagnosed and, you know, then the Rimlands were told to go into psychoanalysis. And uh, Bernie, you know, knew a little, he was not, you know, an autism specialist by any means, but he knew enough about psychology to know BS when he heard it, you know. And and also, he and Gloria were, were warm, affectionate, you know, Jewish teddy bears, basically. Like, they were really nice people. And so, for them to be blamed, like, you know, the, like, in fact, Gloria told me, I interviewed Gloria. Unfortunately, uh, Bernie is, has passed away, but I interviewed Gloria, and she told me that, you know, one night after taking care of Mark for really years in virtual isolation, 
they went out to dinner with another couple and um, the wife and the other couple said to Gloria, you know, you just don't seem to me like that kind of people. Oh. And, and Gloria was like, what kind of people? You know, someone who would do that to your child. You know, and so this is how pervasive it was. And, you know, Gloria never saw them again, understandably. Um, but uh, so it was very, very pervasive. So Bernie decided that this is wrong. So he started collecting notes towards what he thought was going to be a paper. Um, and it was based on Leo Connor's work because there was no Asperger on the scene. Um, and Bernie, as many writers before him and after him, including, I must confess, yours truly, became obsessed with autism. And he, uh, he made it his business to try to read everything that had ever been written about autism. And uh, so we hired a team of Navy translators to help him translate uh, all this work. And I must say, it is a, uh, a tribute, if that's the horrible word, to the effectiveness of Connor's suppression of Asperger's work that Bernie did not reference Asperger's paper in the book that he eventually wrote. Now, books by um, people outside of a, of a particular field about a very, very rare, allegedly, form of child, childhood psychosis, you know, publishers were not chomping at the bit, you know, to, to publish books like that. So what Bernie did was he submitted the manuscript, and this was after years of stuff like, you know, his colleagues would go to New Orleans for a convention or whatever, and he would, instead of going to Bourbon Street, to, you know, get blotto and, you know, party, uh, he would go lock himself into a library. He would persuade the guard at the library to literally lock him in for the weekend, and he would survive on um, stuff like chicken soup from machines. I still remember chicken soup coming from coffee machines. No one does. Like, what a bizarre thing, actually, if you think back. But, you know, so Bernie would get back from these research weekends. Gloria would be shocked because he would look emaciated, really, you know. So Bernie, like, was living and breathing autism for years. And um, Bernie eventually submitted his manuscript to a contest being held by a... Um, uh, a very well-respected psychology publishing uh, firm. And this contest, thankfully for Bernie, uh, was to be judged blind. So the judges would not know who wrote uh, these manuscripts. They would judge them on the basis of their inherent virtue alone. Bernie won the contest. They published the book. It was called Infantile Autism. In many ways, it's still a very good book, believe it or not. It was published in the early 60s. And Bernie just demolished Bettelheim's uh, theory. And in fact, it was really, you know, of course, Connor's theory. The interesting thing is that Bernie respected Connor so much that he didn't really, you know, bust Connor for developing this refrigerator parenting theory. He focused on busting Bettelheim, who had, you know, turned it into this very popular thing in American culture. Um, and so for both parents... And for uh, psychologists, that book really busted Bettelheim, although it took years because Bettelheim was, you know, literally chatting away on the Dick Cavett show and whatnot about how uh, the mothers of autistic children were like commandants in concentration camps. Um, one of the reasons why Bettelheim didn't get busted was that he himself was the Jewish survivor of a concentration camp, so nobody said what are you talking about? You know, that's completely wrong. Everybody trusted him because, you know, he spoke in this perfect Viennese accent. Like, you know, it was like seeing the incarnation of Freud, you know, in this little man with glasses. Um, you know, actually, Bettelheim was almost a complete fraud. 
He had, he had lied about his background. I mean, the one thing that he was, was he was a persuasive writer, but he was persuading people to believe in bad ideas. So, you know, his writing gifts were definitely a mixed blessing. But it took, it took some years for Bettelheim to go away. He eventually committed suicide, uh, by the way. Um, you know, I don't want to project that, well, maybe it's because he had been exposed as a fraud, but um, his critics were getting close, you know, to exposing him. And Bernie had, had exposed that theory as a fraud. And so that really, uh, Bernie's book, Infantile Autism, really was the end of the uh, refrigerator parenting theory. But the notion that that was true, you know, lingered on in psychology for, for uh, another couple of decades until it was proven in the 70s that autism was genetic by doing, primarily genetic, by doing studies of identical twins. Because, the, you know, identical twins, would, if one was autistic, chances are that the other would be autistic. But not always, which is interesting, because it means that there's some kind of uh, epigenetic factor uh, going on in autism, too, because you can have identical twins. One is and one isn't. So there's something going on in the womb, probably, uh, with interaction with, say, you know, maternal hormones or something. Um, but anyway, so once it was established firmly that autism is genetic, then that pretty much put that notion to bed. And that also enabled the rise of the parents' groups who had recently been absolved of responsibility. Right, exactly. Well, it was Bernie himself, actually, who, who enabled the rise of the parents' groups. And he did it in a very interesting way. He thought that his book would go out to his colleagues that, you know, Know, not that many people would read it. Um, and he was really excited about prompting a new phase of autism research. And he believed that um, he could save his son, Mark, if some kind of simple intervention could be developed for autism, like another uh, condition that he studied called uh, phenylketonuria, or PKU. Now, PKU uh, causes um, what used to be called mental retardation. And it's because of the lack of an enzyme to digest a particular amino acid. If you detect PKU very, you know, in the very first days of life, then you can uh, do a dietary intervention that protects the child so that they don't uh, decline. Uh, now that's standard. You know, every, every baby gets tested for PKU. Um, well, you know, uh, it turns out that autism is not that simple. But Bernie didn't know that. So he thought that if he could gather data about autism, then some, you know, kind of industrious uh, guy who knew about, um, you know, biomedicine and diet and stuff could come up with a diet that would be effective for eliminating autism. So one of the things that Bernie did was at the back of his book, he put this questionnaire to ask parents about the behavior of their children. And um, those questionnaires started arriving at Bernie's office, filled in by parents within days of the book's publication. So suddenly, you know, it's like at first Gloria told me, you know, Bernie would say, like, oh, my God, they're tearing pages out of my book. You know, he just hoped that that his colleagues would sort of copy those questionnaires and that they would become uh, like, a, you know, a, the first standardized clinical test for autism, really. Um, but what people, you know, parents were filling it out. Parents were reading the book. Parents were sending it to sending the questionnaire to Bernie's office. And he suddenly realized that he had a community here. And community was exactly what the parents of autistic children needed because they had been struggling both with the inevitable challenges of raising a child on the spectrum, which are, you know, very considerable in any case. Um, and, you know, they'd been isolated by this, by this, you know, horrible theory about refrigerator parenting. He had a community that was like mailing itself into Bernie's office. 
So he started a file for every child whose questionnaire came in. And Bernie eventually realized we need to do something. We need to actually create a parents' revolution. And Bernie uh, connected eventually with this wonderful woman who is still alive. And, you know, God bless her. She is a firecracker. I believe she's now in her early 90s. Her name is, I might be, she might be in her late 80s. I don't want to insult her, you know. But her name is um, Ruth Christ Sullivan. And she had a profound autistic son named Joe who also had some amazing gifts she noticed that um, Joe was putting together a crossword puzzle when he was a baby and Gloria he was doing it in a doorway um, and Gloria like w you know walked through the door scattered all the pieces on the puzzle Joe put the puzzle back together upside down so he did not know what the big picture of this crossword puzzle was he was doing it on the basis of the shapes alone so that was, you know, like the code-breaking thing, in a sense, you know, that, that autistic pattern detection ability. And Joe did a number of other uh, amazing things, as well as being really profoundly impaired. So Ruth Chris Sullivan was uh, an early feminist, and she was also an early civil rights activist. She had um, integrated uh, one of the nurses' associations in the Deep South, and this was during the Jim Crow era, so, you know, it couldn't have been easy. But so she knew about community organizing, which is this, you know, people throw that epithet at Obama as if it's, uh, you know, something terrible. It was uh, amazing. And um, so when Bernie contacted her, Bernie was interested in sort of the science. Ruth was interested in building a community. And together they launched the organization that um, eventually became the Autism Society of America, uh, it was called the National... Oh, sorry. I'm going to have to look. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, Bernie and Ruth Chris Sullivan launched uh, the first National Autistic Society for Parents, really. And, and it was a revolution. And Bernie had been inspired by a woman in England named Lorna Wing. And she is very, very important to the story as well. Bernie had visited a woman named Lorna Wing in England who had started a National Autistic Society there um, a, a little bit before he did in America. And Lorna Wing is absolutely crucial to not just the history of autism, but also my book, because it was Lorna Wing who, in a sense, discovered the autism spectrum again after it had been lost in the intervening decades after World War II. And Lorna Wing was a uh, psychiatrist in England, and she was also the mother of a profoundly autistic daughter named Susie. And so Lorna had this double perspective. She uh, knew about autism as a, as a uh, researcher, and she knew about autism as a mom. Um, she told me, in fact, I was one of the last people to interview her before she died, and she was a wonderful woman. And she told me that she thought um, Connor's theories of refrigerator parenting were bloody stupid, as she put it. Uh, and she knew that her husband and, 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 and she were, you know, very, very warm and affectionate people. They adored Susie, absolutely. They were completely devoted to her. And so, now, Susie actually would have met Connor's narrow definition of autism. Um, and eventually, uh, Lorna was asked by a public health official to uh, gather information about all the families with cognitive disabled children, cognitively disabled children, in a suburb of London called Camberwell so that um, services and resources could be appropriately allocated for these children and their families. So basically Lorna and a research assistant named Judith Gould went out into the community to find cognitive, cognitively disabled children. Now this was different from Connor's approach 
was to, which was to basically wait until families came to his office with their kids. So Lorna and Judith went out, they pounded the pavement, they dug through dusty medical records, they looked in schools, they looked everywhere. And what did they see? Yes, they saw a small group of children who met Connor's you know, classic, very narrow definition of autism. But they also saw all these other kids who did not fit those narrow criteria. Um, for instance, um, some of the kids were very chatty and even helpful to their moms. They'd wash the dishes, and then they would go off in a corner and listen to their favorite phonograph record, you know, 50 times or whatever. Um, obviously, some of the children were interested in people, but they just didn't know how to interact with them reciprocally in a graceful manner. Connor had written about uh, the kids as sort of actively shutting out other people as if they were, you know, judging other people and saying, no, you know, I will not let you into my world. Um, but, you know, what Lorna saw was instead kids who really wanted to, uh, I mean, some of them, not, you know, she saw a very diverse uh, group of kids, but some of them clearly wanted to be around people, but they just didn't know how to do it. You know, they would, they would talk endlessly about a subject of their special interest. They couldn't pick up on the social signals of whether or not the person was bored. Um, so they were, you know, considered eccentric kids. And she thought, that kind of looks like autism. Like, it kind of looks like what was called, by the way, by many clinicians, Connor's syndrome. Um, in fact, the label Connor's syndrome was probably more popular than autism for, for uh, decades, really. But that's how closely, you know, Connor kept an iron grip on the diagnosis. So um, Lorna saw these kids, Lorna and Judith saw all these kids who, quote-unquote, didn't fit into nice, neat boxes, as uh, Judith told me. And she was like, who are these kids? You know, why, why has no one noticed these children before? And she happened to stumble across a reference to some guy that nobody ever heard of named Hans Asperger. She was like, hmm, what is this, what is this uh, paper about, you know, that Asperger wrote? Um, it had never been translated into English. So that's how thoroughly effective, you know, Connor's not mentioning it in his own work until later was. By the way, um, one of the things I discovered for the book was that Connor only mentioned Asperger's name in public one time in his entire career and he was the world's leading authority on autism for a decade. And that one time was in a very dismissive book review written in the 1970s. So, you know, three decades had gone by. And what Connor said was, oh, yes, Asperger. What that person discovered was, at best, a 42nd cousin of my syndrome and has already received serious attention from investigators. Well, you know, no, it had been overlooked. I mean, you know, maybe a couple of guys in Eastern Europe had, you know, thought about it, uh, including the guy who wrote the paper that Lorna read. But um, so Lorna had her husband, John, who luckily spoke German, translate Asperger's paper. And she read it and she said, this is it. This is exactly what I'm seeing in Camberwell, kids like this. And so Lorna came up with the idea of what she initially called, by the way, the autistic continuum. In fact, it was exactly the phrase that, that Frankel used in his own unpublished paper. But I have to say, and this is a kind of a sad thing, uh, Frankel and Lorna probably never spoke. Um, so there was, you know, there was no like living connection between, uh, uh, you know, Lorna and Asperger's work at the time. Although she eventually did meet Asperger and they had tea um, in, in England. 
But anyway, so uh, Lorna came up with this concept of the autistic continuum. She, she eventually thought that the word continuum was a little dry and like too clinical sounding. So she replaced it with the word spectrum because it sounded more like a natural phenomenon, like rainbows. Um, she quietly worked with the uh, editors who were putting together the so-called Bible of Psychiatry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, um, to swap out Honor's artificially narrow model of autism for, really, Asperger's much more inclusive, broad, and diverse one. And uh, Lorna also introduced the concept of Asperger's syndrome to apply to these kind of chatty kids who were clearly very intelligent, who would, um, you know, pursue their passions with vigor, shall we say, the things they were interested in. Um, and uh, so, you know, one of the things that I correct in the book is that people think Asperger discovered Asperger syndrome. You know, they think that because Asperger described these, you know, these chatty little professors in his paper, but Asperger really discovered the autism spectrum. Lorna put in Asperger syndrome into the DSM specifically because it did not contain the word autism. The word autism was so stigmatized that if she would say to parents, well, I think your child has autism, they would be horrified because the the sort of holdover of the era when parents were blamed for autism was still very much in effect. So she said, aha, if I come up with a diagnosis for autism that doesn't have the word autism in it, um, you know, it may become very popular. And uh, boy, was she right about that, you know. I mean, I must say, Asperger himself would be very, uh, you know, probably, like, I can't even imagine what he would have thought about people proudly calling themselves Aspies, you know. Um, that would have surprised Asperger, and it would have surprised Lorna. But anyway, so Lorna broadened the diagnosis. And people didn't really, you know, outside of a small group of experts that talked to each other in journals, uh, people didn't really pay too much attention to what this British woman, you know, was doing with the parameters for the diagnosis of this. Isn't it a very rare condition? That's what we've always heard. So, you know, people didn't really care so much that she was tweaking this diagnosis. But then, uh, you know, she her changes went into effect in two successive editions of the DSM, one in 1986 and one in 1994. And what happened then? The so-called autism epidemic began. And that's because she knew that families of children with autism who were not getting access to services because they couldn't get a diagnosis under Connor's criteria were left out in the cold. And so because she was such a parent herself, she knew how important it was to give parents the key to access services which was an, a diagnosis. And so to Lorna, the fact that more kids were getting diagnosed with autism was very good news because it meant that the changes that she had intended were going into effect and it was working. But then, as we all know, things went wrong. You know, once the number of diagnoses uh, increased so much, people started blaming things like vaccines. Steve, I want to talk to you for the next four hours, <laughs> and we cool. are completely out of time. You are wonderful. So we sorry. haven't covered so many of the things that I that I wish I'm the so audience. Sorry. No, no, no. Why are you apologizing? I'm. I'm just. You let me go here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have not talked about um, the the actually the future part of the title of your book. We've talked a lot about the history, but not the future. And I 
I really highly, highly recommend this book. People go, go out to read it. And actually, if you wouldn't mind, as soon as we get off the air, I'd love to talk to you about something uh, that I was always really interested in, the, the link between science fiction and the autistic community. Do you have a few more minutes after the show ends? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So for anyone who's listening, uh, those extras are only available to our donors. Do go to the Patreon link on our website and you too can hear everything that you're missing. Hello. When's the last time you were on our website? It's probably been a while, I would assume. Well, there's no time like the present. Head to scienceforthepeople.ca, where you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, which people apparently still use. And there's also a link to iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.